Welcome to Wine and Words. My name's Sarah Jane Rose. I'm an actor, voice actor, narrator, and I spent 17 years in the wine trade talking about, writing about, and occasionally drinking wine. So I thought I would share that with you in this new podcast, Wine and Words. So how's that going to work? Each episode, I'm going to introduce a wine to you and also a book, along with some other tenuously linked stories. In this season, we are looking at mystery. So we will be looking at mystery books and unveiling the mystery behind wine while connecting them to some mystery and crime stories behind the wines. Each episode will be split into Listen and Learn, which is the first part where I will do you a very quick, less than five minute tutorial to the grape variety region and wine that we're tasting. And then the second part is Taste and Talk. And this is myself and comedian Craig Dealey drinking wine and talking about it. And each time we have picked an associated mystery or crime story to go with the wine. Finally, each episode will end with a meet the author section. So the book that we've chosen for that week, I will be talking to the author about their journey as a writer and that book in particular. So what's going on in episode one of Wine and Words? First of all, I'm going to treat you to a very quick tutorial about Burgundy wine. Then I'm going to be tasting the Jean Laurent Van de Bourgogne Pinot Noir with Craig Dealey, followed by an interview with writer Paul L. Arvidsson about his book, The Wheels of Katie Gray. So let's get to it. In the listen and learn sections, I will be giving you a less than five minute tutorial into a grape variety or region or style of wine. And in this episode, we are looking at Burgundy. So what do we know about Burgundy? The problem with Burgundy is that it can be or seemingly be a really complicated area. People often steer away from it because they think of it as being too complicated, too expensive and just too much of a minefield. So what I'd like to do is just break it down a little bit for you and make it simple because in theory it isn't that complicated. It actually just breaks down into five areas Chablis, Cote de Nuit, Cote de Bone, Chalonnaise and Maconnaise. So what's so complicated about that? Well one of the issues in many ways but also one of the benefits is that it has such a long rich history. One of the most important things in Burgundy and certainly the things that the winemakers and and growers concentrate on is its terroir. Now they've actually been making wine since sort of the first century. Uh, The history of the soils there is that it was originally a sort of tropical seabed and over time this has developed into this lovely limestone soil which is what enriches the vines with this uh, sort of amazing depth and, and earthiness. And the winemakers there have such a respect for this terroir um, that you'll find that a lot of them, uh, sort of much longer than than many other winemakers, have been using organic and biodynamic practices for quite a long time. So they, they really do have a passion for the soil and how they treat their grape varieties instead of potentially, you know, other areas where they're just banging stuff out as quick as they can. So... What grape varieties? So really, again, in theory, you only really have to worry about two. There are other grape varieties, but Chardonnay and Pinot Noir are your two main grape varieties in Burgundy. They do produce some of the um, Gamay and uh, Aligote and some other grape varieties, but most of the time you're just looking at Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and really, 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 really good Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. So again, why is it so complicated? So there are only a few classifications. So you've got Grand Cru, Premier Cru, Village and Regional. Um, So again, what's so hard? The problem is within that, you've got those five areas, you've got those classifications, but you have 84 Appalachians. So Unless you want to go round and learn 84 different Appalachians and what their different flavour profiles are, it starts to become a bit complicated. And within that, so within, it, within each Appalachian for a variety of reasons, you actually end up with a complexity within that. So, for example, if you take Eschazo, Eschazo is about 26 acres of area, but in that there are 80 different producers 
producing wine from that small area. So even even with the term Echezo or any of the other Appalachians, you're going to get differences within that because there are different winemakers making different things from that area. And then it add on to that vintage variation, uh, the, the, what they've done with the wine, have they aged it in oak and, and, and et cetera, et cetera. So my advice to you, if you want to, and particularly if you're a big fan of sort of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, and I know Chardonnay still isn't that popular, but I sort of beg people to get involved. There's so many really good Chardonnays. The idea that Chardonnay isn't fashionable still to this day seems absurd to me. Um, But let's just talk about Pinot Noir briefly. Pinot Noir is really popular. So if you're drinking Pinot Noir, you really ought to investigate Burgundy Pinot Noir. And you can start by looking at those regional uh, Appalachians, the village and the regional Appalachian. That's going to give you some really good introduction into Pinot Noir without you having to spend a fortune. Um, Are you going to get it for less than a fiver? No, but I don't necessarily recommend you drink wine that cheap anyway. uh, But you can get some really good uh, sort of Van der Burgoyne, if you like, from around the sort of 14 to 16 pounds and it and it's well worth it and the one that i'm going to be tasting with craig today is the jean laurent van de bourgoyne pinot noir so we will go into taste and talk now and see what craig has to say about the pinot noir So moving on from our quick introduction into Burgundy, we're now going to go to the best bit and taste the wine. And I have with me once again the fabulous Craig Dealey, who has I've sort of twisted his arm quite a lot to come and join me and drink some wine and talk about it. Yep, dragged me here. Dragged him here, dragged him here. Um, so what we're going to do, we're going to have a look at the wine, the Burgundy wine that I was talking about in the little tutorial. We're going to talk about the associated story which because we're in the middle of mystery march and which is about fraud in the wine industry and hoodwinking uh, people that should have known better really and it just goes to show what uh, what people managed to get away with in the past but first of all Craig um, let's have a look at the wine now I know that uh, from our previous discussion that you actually prefer a bigger style of wine I do prefer a yeah a a bigger flavour a drier flavour um, it's not that I don't like white, but I will naturally just go for reds. So, and this is Pinot Noir, so it's a little bit lighter than generally. So, mm-hmm. you're, the what it is, the skin of the grape variety is much thinner than that of, for example, a Malbec or, right. a, or a Cabernet. And so, it's not going to get those sort of rich, concentrated flavours. What's great about Pinot Noir, though, and sort of specifically Bur- uh, Burgundy, is the terroir that then is that comes through in the grapes because it's not overtaken by that sort of fruitiness of that comes through. So, although you could argue that it's a lighter style of wine in terms of concentration, actually the depth of flavour for me, for a Burgundy particularly, should be really interesting. And I think that's for for me now, you get a lot of people who say, that, oh, I just, you know, I really want a big flavoured wines. But actually, if you take the time to just concentrate a little mm-hmm. bit on the flavours that are going on, you might find that you get more out of a Pinot Noir than you were expecting. So we're going to do that first. So there'll be some slurpy, slurpy noises. Mm-hmm. Actually, Craig, uh, I don't think I've done this with you before. Have I made you do a wine tasting no, before? No, we normally we normally just drink normally it. Normally just open it, get it down, yeah, <laughs> literally. Okay, <laughs> right. In that case, this time we're going to take our time. Okay. So first of all, we're going to swirl the glass, mm-hmm. and what this does is uh, release the aromas in the wine. Now, often I do this, and I do this all automatically because I've been working around wine for so long, mm-hmm. and people do look at me like I'm a bit of a knob. <laughs> Rob hates it. My other half is like, "Oh, can you stop doing that? You look like such a dick." Um, but it does genuinely uh, release the aromas. So if you take that in. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to try not to influence you, and just you can say anything you like; it doesn't matter. Um, in terms of anything that you get on the nose, cherry. He wins. He wins. Have you done your homework on Pinot Noir? <laughs> I had a box of cherries before I came in. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cherry is one of the classic notes for, for mm. Pinot Noir, and, it, and it, it's often you know incredibly obvious on the nose. So you get a bit of that. There's a little bit of um, minerality there for me too and a touch of smokiness. So the one that we're drinking at the moment is the Bourgogne Pinot Noir by Jean Laurent, uh, which is a Van de Bourgogne. So we're going to take a bit of a slurp now. Now, again, this sort of slurping nonsense is just to get those flavours around. Yeah. And as we were talking about, having that understanding of the depth that is there rather than just 
glugging it as mm-hmm. you would do normally, but just to kind of appreciate what's going on in the wine. see how long you can do that without dribbling um i do actually have a spittoon i forgot because i'm driving i'm gonna get the spittoon so it's a bit like when you're doing the slurping it's a bit like sort of mouthwash really you're just going to take it all around and get all those flavors in Mm. And what do you get from that? Do you get, interestingly, I think that's got quite um, prevalent tannins on it. So is that quite drying it's sensation? Like a, a flat flavour. Flat, okay. Um, uh, yeah, it's very dry. Um, uh, raspberries, I can taste yeah. a little bit yeah. as well. It's got like a, a acidy, fruity yeah. taste. Um, it's quite light, but deep yeah. in flavour. Yeah. And I think for me, you get a little bit, not, not as much as you can get with the sort of higher end burgundies, but there's that touch of of earthiness to it. So mm. you get almost, and it's almost on the finish, that almost sense, and again, I want to stop myself from sounding too ridiculous, but like that scent, a sense, there's a sense of mushroom at the end. It's not like a, uh, it's not like a, it's not like it tastes of mushrooms. It's just like a little hint of mushroom. Truffle oil. Truffle oil. Bit of truffle, bit of truffle <laughs> bit of on truffle the finish. truffle at the end sneaking in there. Um, but that's but that's really nice now. And we talked about that. This is just thirteen percent. So it's okay. a lunchtime wine, yeah. Craig. We can start drinking this at lunch and just carry on. It's totally. It's fine. a warm warm up. It's a warm up, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I do like Pinot Noir as well. I okay. Do often, not often, but I do buy that uh, occasionally. Yeah. I'm a bit obsessed with Pinot Noir at the moment. It has to be said, and um, I've been. And I think it, it, a part of it's to do with what we talked about before, that sort of, that alcoholic content a lot of a lot of the bigger wines. Mm. Um, so especially if I'm, if we're having, you know, a glass of wine of the evening, and usually cause what happens with us is it, we don't start, if we drink, we're not going to drink until much later, until the kids have gone to bed or whatever. So actually we don't tend to drink with dinner, okay. which means I need something lighter. Yeah. And then, so we'll have like one glass. So for me, Pinot Noir is really good for that. To fit into that. Yeah. So with this, uh, so with each week, we have uh, a wine, we have a story of wine crime, and then we also have a book that goes with that. So this week's book is um, The Wheels of Katie Gray, written by Paul L. Arvidsson. And um, it's there's a certain amount of corruption involved in the book. So I was looking for a wine that kind of had some sort of associations with corruption and and obviously the one obviously if you're in the wine trade there's uh the one of the biggest cases of wine fraud mm-hmm. ever known which is the case uh, the case the case only about only had one glass mm-hmm. of wine the case of rudy kerniwan mm-hmm. and this in many ways i'm still making a noise <coughs> The case of Rudy Kernowan, who was a gentleman who arrived in California and nobody really knew anything about his background. He was quite sort of mysterious, um, gregarious character who appeared to have a huge amount of money. And he suddenly became very famous at auctions, buying up huge amounts of wine. And for many, many years, he essentially fooled a lot of very big wine buyers into buying a shitload of fake <laughs> wine, basically. And and it wasn't until one winemaker picked up on this and saw one of his wines on the market that it didn't exist because he hadn't oh, made it that yeah, year. Yeah, because he claimed it was a proper vintage like from yeah. the 1940s or yeah, something. Yeah, I think it was 1947 and the winemaker was like, I didn't make that wine in 1947 and yet somehow it was available on the market. <laughs> and so he started, but at the time... I think sort of wine fraud wasn't certainly wasn't really considered a big crime. It was like, well, you know, whatever, you know, it doesn't really matter. So it took him quite a while to get, uh, you know, he did a lot of the investigations mm-hmm. himself, and he 
he sort of followed Rudy Kernuan around and eventually got the FBI involved. And when they raided his house, because yeah. it was just in his house, they found this huge counterfeiting operation. Yeah, yeah. And he'd been printing these labels of all these vintage Burgundy wines and um, and, and then selling them on the market. And people didn't realise. And for me, this is a really interesting story in terms of, obviously it's bad, fraud is bad. But... Um, I talk about the the fact I don't one of the things I don't like in the wine world is the excessive snobbery that surrounds it and this comes from I think a sort of history of it, it being not as accessible as it is now obviously and and I'm I'm going to say this it it comes from a history of being very male dominated mm-hmm. and it being a lot of posturing so and then this still exists now, where it's like, well, I'm going to do this, and you know, the the story you said of of a friend of yours wanting to order almost the the most yeah. expensive wine. I think he menu. might have been a victim of this man. <laughs> he could have been, yeah, because you said the wine wasn't very good. <laughs> wasn't. But the, and and I think there's this sort of thing, isn't it, where it, where somehow if you know about wine or if you can afford to buy expensive wine, that makes you a, a better person. So there's always, mm. and, and I know it's not just wine that that happens in. Also, a lot of the wines that you buy that you think are, you know, vintage and really expensive, they're not drunk, are they? You no. just you keep them, keep no. them in the dusty cellar. Yeah, and and that's a whole other level of it, isn't it? Where it becomes um, an asset, and uh, and actually there was a um, uh, something recently where somebody had sent me some details of. Uh, somebody else who I can't name, uh, where <laughs> basically they were they were investing in some wine. And it was a slightly odd situation. So it, ha- it happens. People invest in wine. And um, because what does happen, because, say, for example, in Bordeaux and Burgundy, they only make a small amount of it, obviously, in each year. So once it's gone, it's gone. And that's why it ends up with this, um, why people sort of covet it a little bit, mm-hmm. because it ends up being this luxury thing that's only existed in that moment in time. So is it a bit like, you know, Beaujolais Nouveau, when that comes out, people yeah, clamour to, to be the first exactly, to buy that? exactly. It just sort of they? creates this thing. So... Um, but, but but at a sort of higher level yeah. where they, you know, because it's been a brilliant vintage and this winemaker did this and blah, blah, blah. And so it becomes this this coveted thing to own this. And actually there was a book we did uh, in the very early on in, I'll have to look it up, I've forgotten it now. I've forgotten the name of it. But it was about a guy who was so obsessed with uh, sort of Bordeaux and taste and just yeah. wanting to taste these wines. And... And that's how it becomes, but also it becomes this posturing yeah, thing. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose in a way it's also it's a bit like when you buy, you know, toys, for example, in their original packaging and you keep them for years and you never you're never gonna play with them. No. Or you know, action figures from the nineteen fifties and it's still in its original box uh, so it's the same sort of thing i suppose isn't it yeah, uh, that's funny isn't it that you, that, what, that i've always thought that as odd because i'm terrible for uh i'm quite a messy person yeah. as you may know yeah. and um so for me the idea of, of 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 having something like that where you keep it in perfect condition and don't play with it is really <laughs> odd and it would be the same for me with wine yeah. like why would i invest in something that i'm not gonna drink yeah, exactly. like what yeah, the f- yeah. <laughs> why am yeah. i gonna do that <laughs> But, you know, so people do it. But, yeah, it was – and so this story is that he, he hoodwinked all these people. Eventually he was caught by the FBI and had this this sort of huge case that went on and, and went to prison for a very long time. Ten years, I think. Yeah, yeah. To, which, to be fair, again, it was um, thousands and thousands of yeah. of pounds worth of wine yeah. he managed it's to. It's just very – I mean, of course it's wrong, but very clever of him. <laughs> it's, we can say it's wrong, you, but – It's wrong. However, it's, it's quite it, interesting. very clever of him to tap into that mentality – well, and, also, and show I th- it up. yeah, and I, and what was interesting, I think, is also this thing is is that further down the line, these people went, well, yeah, we didn't actually know anything about this bloke. We just believed yeah. him because yeah. he was gregarious and he seemed to have a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So because he had a lot of money and you just believed everything, there was yeah. nothing really to back him up. Yeah. They still to this day don't know anything about his alleged background <laughs> um, because he's just this con man that made up all this stuff. That everyone was like, oh yeah, he's he's the new guy in California. Yeah. Where, where do you buy fake label makers for wine bottles? Is that a thing? <laughs> I don't think you can Google it. No. Um, yeah, and, and and the and the guy uh, who who sort of unveiled it all was saying that the labels were so convincing. Mm. It wasn't just that he put oh I've, I've written it in Byros every Chambertin, you know, nineteen forty seven. They were perfectly yeah. produced. Um, and didn't he make 
the older ones look like old yeah, as well. Yeah, he went, you know, so and to be fair to him, he was detailed, yeah. he was driven, you know, it's not like he just didn't put any work or thought into Got it. Got to admire his, his, his yeah. attention to detail. But, uh, but yeah, so fascinating, fascinating. So, and actually we're going to, we're going to test your skills on that a bit in the final episode of this season, uh, where we're going to blind taste all of the wines that we're going to do in the next few episodes. And then I'm going to make um, Craig, although we should probably both do it, you know. I think so. I wasn't going to do that. Fuck. Okay, yeah, fair enough. No, we'll both do it. We'll both blind take. Okay. How am I going to do that, though? We'll have to do half and half. Because one of us will have to pour... I'll think about that. All right. One or I'm, both of us I'm will happy, be blind tasting. I'm happy to drink all the wine on my own. <laughs> okay. Because I'm not driving. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, so Pinot Noir... We're okay with yep. it's fine. I, like quite, it. I love it. Mm-hmm. I'm a bit of big fan of Pinot Noir. I'm a big fan of Burgundy. Yes, it, it can be uh, a little bit expensive. But I like that kind. It's almost like a metallic sort of. Yeah, that's the minerality yeah. sort of to it, which is really nice, and the acidity which comes in, um, and which is what one of the things that make it a really good food wine, yeah. which is lovely. So, um, so yeah, big fan of that. So as I said, this is the Bourgogne Pinot Noir Montvalon by Jean Laurent. I'll put the details in the programme notes. And thank you very much to Fraser's Wine Merchants for that. And we will move on to the next part of Wine and Words because it's not just about wine and crime, it's also about books. So in the next part of Wine and Words, I will be talking to author Paul L. Arvidsson about his book, The Wheels of Cady Gray. Thank you, Craig. Loved it. Now, that little tale of corruption and fraud brings me seamlessly in to my guest this week, which is Paul L. Arvidsson, who is the writer of The Wheels of K.D. Gray. Hi, Paul. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> How's the wine? It's lovely. It's really nice. It's quite a, quite a kind of grown-up mouthful, isn't it, which I really like about it. I think that's a really good one. It is, gro- is grown-up, actually, yes. It's not... Um... Yeah, I, I, I think I've, I've always really liked um, Burgundy and I've always really liked French wine um, mm. Burgundy in particular because it is a grown up mouthful and kind of everyone yeah. seems to drink things that that taste of pop these days and it's kind of <laughs> similar to that. Actually, something, like, something that I didn't mention is that the, one of the other reasons that I'm drawn to Burgundy particularly at the moment is that um, the alcohol content so in this it's only 12.5% and I really struggle at the moment because I'm old and I can't drink you know, too many glasses of wine back in the day. And um, and so many wines are 14%. Some Rhone wines are 15%. I used to love Rhone. I can't drink it at the moment because it's just it's too high in alcohol. So to have this, you know, this incredibly sort of full depth of flavour wine, but yet it's still quite low in alcohol, I just think. And it's, it's very enjoyable and enticing because it has those... It's, it's, it's that earthiness and that makes it grown up. It's not fruity, it's not fluffy, it's it's kind of real, uh, which yeah. I really like. And this is 2017, so it's got quite a bit of age on it, which, um, again, I like. Usually so. complicated. Yeah, exactly. Just happens. Yeah. So, enough about wine. We'll carry on drinking. Let's talk about the wheels of Katie Gray. So, we have worked together. Uh, we have just finished producing the audiobook of the wheels of Katie Gray, which I absolutely loved. Um, so, tell us a little bit about Wheels of Katie Gray and what inspired you to write it. Um, well, if if you believe it, um, it was it was entirely an accident. Um, we were talking on camera before um, before we started. Um, backstage um, about the fact that I'm, I'm also a science fiction writer um, and I've written a, a series of science fiction books um, and I was I was between science fiction books um, ready to write the next one I had I had this trilogy all planned out and in the way that all things go it turned into four books um, but while I was trying to write book three I was desperate to get this book three written um, and none of the ideas for any of it, it would come to mind at all um, and then I found myself kind of waking up having this same dream at night um, about um, well, essentially what became the first team in, in Katie Gray and um, to the idea of um, this kind of teenage girl um, in a chair face down in the mud um, with 
somebody closing in on her um, with the intent to kill her. Um, and that just image just came to me. Um, and I was kind of, it's like in a park somewhere with a real person, like now. Um, so it was, it was hugely frustrating, I have to say. Um, and so in the end, I had to junk the, um, <laughs> junk my progress in the science fiction book and just stop and write Katie Gray. Um, because it was just in my head and there was nothing else in there and I just had to get it out. It's like, well, why is she there in the chair and who's trying to kill her and why? And um, so, yeah, so that, that happened. Um, and that was, that was, that was the inspiration. And then, and then you just accidentally wrote an entire book. I accidentally did. Well, I kind of had to work out why she was there, you know, and, and, and why yeah. the guy was the killer and, you know, and how she'd gotten there. Um, so, so it was that. Um, and, and that's and, it, and that's how the and that's how the book starts. That's the first chapter of the book. So we start with, uh, yeah. we almost sort of start with the end, don't we? And we sort of work yeah. a little bit backwards, yeah, yeah, and discover um, and discover exactly why she's there, yeah, yeah. Um, and in a funny kind of a way, I know, I know a lot of authors say this, but I, I swear, honest to God, it's the truth um, that I wrote the book and then kind of thought about it afterwards once it was all down on the page. Um, so my daughter. Um, has got a, a, an extremely rare condition. She's one of like 10 kids in the world um, who've got this particular gene um, alteration that she's got. Um, and uh, it means that she's a wheelchair user. And um, and in a way, she's her life is quite limited. And in other ways, it isn't. Um, but all the frustrations of her life, in a way, um, although I don't see them exactly from her point of view, I kind of see them from over her shoulder. Um, and so um, so as I was writing the book, it, I realised that there were loads of scenes where where I was just venting all this kind of spleen. A- but the, I mean, for me, I think I said, I can't remember if I said it to you, but I said it to several people. I think I did an Instagram post about it. That there's a couple of moments in it for me that really, when I first read it, that kind of made me take a breath and, and, and they were almost really simple like there's a moment where she where he doesn't see her and there's a and there's just I think it's just one sentence where it says um you know for once it was a uh, it was useful to be unseen because so many yeah. people just don't see her um and and I remember kind of really taking it and I'm going god there's just those and then there's the, the little sort of you know that one's quite sort of touching and alarming in a way but then there's other little bit moments when just like the ramps and it's like, oh, there's not. Oh, yeah. Right. So we've got to use the the ramp around the back that's near the bin or whatever, you know, and all those little moments where you're like, oh, God, she's some, just something that's so simple and yet causes causes her such frustration. Um, but what's great, I think, is she turns she's such a hero, KD, in this book and the way that she's written. First of all, I'm a huge fan of the amount of swearing that she does. Um, I love it. I was like, great. I don't get to swear very often in audio. <laughs> and, um, and I love a bit of swearing. So, I, you know, it was great. And, it, it, you know, and again, it, it, it highlights that frustration that, that she has, that, that she's, um, but she's, she's brilliant. So the book is all, um, is a group of, of these kids at, uh, at yes. a school and they uh, sort of have to solve um um, a, a, a case of corruption uh, actually and and they and they sort of go on this on this adventure but they're incredibly brave and and they they sort of face all these they just keep going despite whatever their personal limitations are which I just think is that part about the book is just is just wonderful in, in a way I guess it was kind of um it was it was exploring their frustrations at the same time as seeing seeing where that puts them in the world and it doesn't necessarily give them superpowers but it does give them a different yeah. a different filter on the world um so the the thing that you were saying about katie being invisible it's one of it used to be one of the, the taglines when i first wrote the book um and although you know it means that you know that she's going to be last to be picked for the football team um it does mean that it makes her a fantastic detective and a spy because yeah. nobody notices the kid in the wheelchair. Um, and so it kind of gave her this kind of beautiful kind of in for all these things. Um, but that was kind of, in a way, those were the things that came from the telling of the story because I wanted the story to be about um, 
be about one of those kind of everyday tales of corruption um, where some crafty bastard's getting away with it. Um, mm. And somebody unexpected spots it. It was the, the wine tale was beautiful because it's almost exactly the same thing. You know, somebody who was somebody who was unexpected spotted it. Somebody who's been building a yeah. wine business for years and grafting away suddenly clocks it. Um, yeah. And then, actually, you know, I, I was kind of telling the story from that chair, if you like, from that point of view. The idea that you know, well, you're then going to go to the police and say, well, hold on, there's all this stuff happening and everyone's going to go, you're mad, behave. Um, and, and it's that kind of disbelief. And then the fact that, right, well, you're the only person who believes you and you know yeah. there's something wrong. You've got to do something about and it. The, and the, um, the, the friendship group as well, because they're so, uh, I guess, because they're, they're sort of coming from the same uh, point of view. But that mm. friendship group is so beautifully written and they're so, you know, they're so tight and they certainly, you know, Cage does a really good job of looking after everybody but they all have their own um, sort of moments and, and and their own bit, and it and it's just it's just wonderful. But I think also for me, there's a bit where um, where you, where you see the impacts of the, the bit about the corruption. It's like all oh, this this stuff happens, and they've just done this with absolutely no thought about the impact that it has on this school and these people. Yeah. So it's really nice that it takes it, you know, from that level that these people have just done it. Um, and, and, and actually, he, he sort of has um, a, a, a sympathetic reason for having done it. Yeah. Um, yeah. In the end, but 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 the effect that it has is is, is obviously tragic, and uh, and, I, and I just think it's it's wonderful. And you know, I think it's important to have those representations in in fiction, um, and and the, and, the, and the characters for me are just great. And, and we made the decision early on that we were going to do, or I suggested that, that I would tone it down a bit on the RP and that we'd make it sort of a little bit mm. more Midlands. And I loved, actually, in the end, uh, how Katie came out as this sort of Birmingham uh, girl was, was super fun. And, it was, and I was never expecting, you know, when I wrote it, I, I knew she was from somewhere. But I, you know, I, I kind of in my own head canon because I'm, you know, because I hail from Merseyside. In my head canon, she was a scouser, um, and so kind of it was. It was only kind of in our production process, I guess, when we were starting to talk about it. And what what was more important than the accents, in a way, was that the the voice and the person that you inhabited for Katie was that somebody that you were comfortable with. And I guess, yeah. in a way, in the back of my mind, was somebody that you identified with. And actually, that was just what came out of the process. So it was great. It worked really, yeah. really well. Um, and so, you know, and so Katie became a brummie. I love, I love it. And, and, and all the kids, and it was just, it was super fun. And, and it came to me because um, the the Northfield that's mentioned in the book, which you did, is, is an area in Birmingham. Um, so that was, that was fun. And I, and I quite enjoyed doing it. Um, and on, on the subject of audio, because you've got, you've had uh, your other books done in audio as well. So focusing on that a little bit, what, what do you think, why do you think it's important to have your work in audio? Would, would it, would it have been something that you'd have skipped past or would you always, would you always thought, oh no, I, there'll definitely be an audio book? No, I think I've always wanted them to be audio books. Um, the, the science fiction series, um, the the shtick of the science fiction series is that um, it takes place entirely in the dark. Um, so the entire series is set with no light whatsoever at all. Um, and so all of the characters who aren't quite human either um, uh, have this entire world that they live in um, that you explore as a, as a reader. Um, and in a way... Um, it kind of then had to become an audiobook um, because the idea of kind of sitting down in the dark with your, with your cans on, kind of having it all just happen in oh, your head, is, is, you know, it became part of how I imagined what the thing was, you know. And, um, and so those kind of things, I think, were, were really, really important. And I, you know, I, I'm, I mean, if, I, if, if we're all about confession after a glass of wine, um then um then i'm a i'm a you know i'm a theater loving um by um by kind of education um so i, I spent three years at lancaster and came out with a degree in it <clears throat> and then went off to become a techie um but all of that kind of aspect of kind of making a show um and having kind of different ways of telling a story 
in a way, are kind of very much what I'm about. I love the idea of that. But, um, you know, I knew from having done theatre, you know, that it's a it's a ball-breaking process. It's a, you know, putting, turning something that's flat on the page, which is a, 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 of your listeners who are, who are writers as well, you know, it's a, it's a, or have ever thought that they want to write, you know, it's a it's a massive undertaking to have gotten to the you know the end bit of a you know of a book is an amazing thing to have done. But then when you try and lift that up and kind of make it alive in another in another medium, it's just you know it's a it's a huge undertaking. It's a um, and I guess in a way um, you've got to have the thing that I've learned from the process <clears throat> is that you've got to have somebody who does it for a living to do it. Um, mm. And we talked about this when we first started that kind of weird. Um, weird kind of writer voice dating thing where you kind of work out who you're going to like and who you're going to get on with and and whether you're going to work creatively together. I think having someone who just knows what the process entails and somebody mm. who understands the drama of stuff and somebody who also you did a whole load of stuff uh, um, because the when you when you take a book and turn it into an audio, um, it becomes a different thing whether you want it to or not. Um, and there's a lot that you did on the fly um, that you asked me about afterwards in the edit, things about like taking out speech tags and stuff like that. Mm. Um, actually, when you write something, it makes it very simple, you know, to have he said, she said, um, um, you know, you, you get taught in author school that, you know, that was a that was a, 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 a fad at the time that all the all the speech tags are going to be he's and she's and that's it. Um, but actually, that makes a really, really boring audio book. Um, you know, and it and it becomes irritating, yeah. and you know you took all that stuff out. Um, so all of those things, there was a lot of stuff that you do just because of the fact that you're sat behind the mic and you're a performer behind the mic that you automatically think about. And it's you know it was just really really, it was a lovely process to have all of that stuff, um, not taken off me, but kind of have another creative input, I guess, in that process. And I think, that yeah, because I think it, it can be difficult, uh, I think, for writers, because depending on how they write, it, it might be that they've got a very specific voice of <laughs> the characters or a very specific voice of the narrator. And I've known authors who've spent so long trying to find someone with that exact voice, and no one's going to have that exact voice that's in their yeah. head. Yeah. So in a way, I think as a writer, if you can somehow, if you don't have it, or if you can somehow let go of it a little bit, and as you say, trust trust the person, choose somebody who does it for a living, uh, yeah. and uh, then then you'll get you'll get a really good experience. But I think, yeah, it can be hard with, with authors where that they'll like, oh no, oh, this I want this to sound exactly like this. I want this to, and then the whole process is going to be tough. Um, but yeah, it was it was nice to have have that kind of free reign a little bit, really, where I'd said, "Should we do this, that, this, and can, and can we do that?" Which was nice. I don't know. I've, I've always been a collaborator in those kind of things. I, I'm yeah. very much a fan of kind of you know you you make the most of that kind of dating part of the process and make sure that you get on with the person that you that you're going to work with, and then you can do that. Then you can kind of throw to throw the ball to each other and you know either catch it or have a laugh if you drop it, you know. And so it's kind of it's. it's I think, and I think part of that's the, the theatrical background, isn't it? Because if you've ever been in a show that has been a real collaborative process, um, and I've been in a few that have been wonderful like that, where everyone is kind of part of the creation of the show, then the thing that you get at the end is is amazing because yeah. it's yeah. been built together in this sort of synergy whereas if it's been you know you you must move here on this line and do this and blah, 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 then it, it's not quite so enjoyable and uh, and I think yeah exactly the same for for audiobooks um, yeah I and, and I've been I've always been I have said this before on the on the lives I'm a bit of a weirdo in that I don't really listen to music I always listen to audiobooks and I always have so um for me, you know, I am epically passionate about them because, uh, mm. you know, I just think it's brilliant. I love them. So, I, brilliant. Got, can, I, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Um, so the flip side of that is that do you um, do you ever get kind of um, where you've got to read a manuscript and you kind of look through it and go, oh, God, look at this one. Um, no, that never happens. No, that never happened, ever. In terms of, I, I guess more, I think, in terms of kind of difficulty, because you get ones that are kind of, you know, it's entirely headcanon or it's one or two characters, whereas I kind of threw you a bit of a curve. I, I 
felt um, because there's, there's like umpteen characters and you were talking about the idea of kind of inhabiting a voice well bloody hell I, I, I laid it out there for you because there's lots of characters and the thing about it is that I wanted it to be filmic in the way it works in the book but then I thought oh god I've inflicted this on somebody you know and they've got like a million characters and there's kind of scenes that kind of shoot past where there's like to, six to seven honest, characters and you get one line it's so much more fun having having that. And actually, if you do anything, if you narrate um, like fantasy, you're normally bonkers because there's like 12 dwarves and 14, you know, there'll be huge, you know, 14 elves and all the elves are Irish, all the dwarves are Scottish, you, you know. <laughs> and But they've all got different names and they're all in the same meeting, uh, which is always fun. But yeah, so ha- but having those different characters, it, it, it does make it a little bit, a little bit more dramatic. I have... Um, I said I won't name them, but I have uh, occasionally come across and, and narrated things that are let's go with overwritten, um, which sometimes gets a little bit like, oh. um, <laughs> and, and that can, that genuinely can be tough. Uh, but this wasn't so. Well, on the on the subject of that, um, we, we could probably just carry on just drinking wine and, and stuff. But I, I feel like we should bring it to a close. Uh, but it was a, I I really loved I loved I genuinely loved uh, the rules of Peter Gray, and I hope that um, other people have uh, read it already, enjoyed it. And if you're waiting for the audiobook, it'll be out very soon. But here to finish off, we are going to play you chapter one of the Wheels of Peter Gray. So first of all, thanks very much, Paul, for joining us. If you're watching us in the replay, then let us know, uh, put in the comments what you thought of the book, or if you haven't read the book, or if you're going to wait for the audio book, tell us what you're drinking, and uh, sort of generally join in. But we will say goodbye, and I will play you The Wheels of Katie Gray. Thanks so much for joining me, Paul. Absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much. Chapter 1. Katie Gray lay nose down in the soil. The wheels of her chair spun above her. The weight of the chassis pinned her down. Rain fell in great big drops all around her. She couldn't move her legs at the best of times, but she was sure her right shin was broken. She was too stunned to feel much of it yet. Everything was one great bruise. Her head felt muzzy. She must have banged it, along with everything else. Petricor. A smell of rain after a dry spell. What the fuck, Katie? Where did that come from? The subconscious can properly fuck with your head sometimes. She opened her eyes. I. Grass and soil close up. Some kind of edging stone with a smear on it. Something trickling from her fringe down her nose on the right-hand side. For a moment it felt comfortable like being held down by a massive duvet or hugged tight in a huge embrace. She could just go to sleep. And, bam, here came the pain. Katie clenched her jaw. At least that wasn't broken. Her lips were sticky. She could taste metal and salt. The right shin, definitely broken. But good news, she could feel her toes. They hurt like hell too. Head... She couldn't pull her focus to that yet, all too stabby. Somehow, she knew if she let herself focus on that too much, she'd pass out again, and that would be bad. Really, really bad. Shit. 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 Focus on something, Katie. Noise. What was that noise? Straining, labouring. Something's going to break. Mechanical? Not exactly. Electro-mechanical? Chair wheels, running full tilt with nothing to grab on, flailing like a beetle on its back. The chair must have been sat on its arm with its controller bent backward. Well, that was going to burn the motor out, no mistake. She spread her awareness out slowly. It wasn't far from the controller and it wasn't broken. She shifted her weight from her hips to her right arm. Shit! 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 Too much weight on her to get free. But she could move her hand. The whole chair arm was twisted out of shape. She could see along the profile of the chair that plastic engine cover had snapped loose, spilling its wiry intestines onto the grass. Man, this chair was fucked up. Dad was going to be so pissed at her. She felt for the chair controller joystick. 
The golf ball she always had on the top of it had gone, lost in the crash. Just a metal stick left. She pushed the metal stick into the soil, back into its neutral position. The screeing noise stopped. Good. Quiet now. Not quiet. Ringing in her ears and rain splashing. She must have been lying where a puddle was gathering because her legs felt wet. Tick, tack, tick. Was that in her head? She'd dreamed about that before. Was she concussed? Another part of her brain was waking up. Her hind brain, home of warnings, of fear, of fight or flight. But she couldn't fly. Her wheels were broken. Tack, tick, tack. Shit. Now she knew. That noise. Bad brain, slow brain. Now it was catching up. Tick, tack. A noise and a person. Bad bad person. It spooled out of her like an old broken film reel. Images yammering from her brain on fast forward. Flash, the glint of a gold ring on someone's little finger. Insincere smile, not him. Flash, the joy of the chair lights springing into life when she'd flicked the new switch. Dad was the best, not Dad. Flash, bright flash, muzzle flash, ringing noise, there, that was it. Flash. 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 But only one bang. Ears overloaded in a confined space. Certainly a bang first time. Ears still ringing now. A short time ago then. Tick. Tack. What was that noise? Getting slowly louder. Slowly closer. That was important. It was an odd noise. A stupid noise. A what-the-fuck noise. A lazy noise, a rhythm noise, like a metronome. Tick, tack, like blues, a walking blues, that was it, everything tick. The noise was walking, tack, the sound of those stupid segs on the man's shoes, tack. The man, greasy hair and arrogance, tall Thames estuary accent, tack. Dots tattooed on his knuckles, something black, metal held firm in his hand. The smell of oil. Tick. He was coming. For her. Tack. And he was going to kill her. Tick. Tack. Bill had called him Tick Tack. Shit, Bill, where's Bill? Something made her not want to think of that. The rear brain. Fight or flight. No flight. There was another one. What was it? Fight. Flight and... Tick. Tack. Freeze. That was it. Fight, flight, or freeze. The air filled with noise. Her chair back jerked. That noise, bang, never quite seemed to describe that noise. It filled her ears with loud, even out here, face down in the grass, an echo off every hard surface of the building behind them, the town hall. No flash this time, with her face in the grass but at least that meant she couldn't see what was coming. No, wait. It also meant the chair body was between him and her. Something from deep inside her chair was fizzing. Tick. Oh, there you are. The voice dripped arrogance. She hated that voice. Don't go anywhere, will you? Oh, wait. <laughs> you can't. Fuck her, was all she could manage in return. But with her face in the grass, she could hardly hear herself. Tick, tack, tick, tack. I don't really want to do this, you know, he said. God, he loved the sound of his own voice. Liar! He laughed, harsh, echoing. It rang off the walls. Harsher, somehow, than the shock of the gun, the gun... He really was going to kill her. How many rounds had he fired? Could she remember? There was something stopping her recall. Flash. 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 What was it? Flash. 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 Bill. Bill falling. Falling, shouting out, Shit, Bill! How many rounds? One just now? Three? Three from before? 
One before that, so one left. Did guns even have six rounds in them these days? How did she need to know this? But one. One was plenty. Tick. Tack. Tick. Fight. Flight. Or freeze. Her dad always said, You never really know which you're going to do until something bad enough happens. Something so bad that your insides have already turned to water, and your brain is racing in six different directions at once, and you're going nowhere. Here I come, Katie. Time to pray. He couldn't be serious. Pray? No, this cocky shitbag would be all about that, wouldn't he? Bang, bang. Oops, sorry, I killed somebody. That's okay, though, right, God? Bit of absolution 101 and off we go again. Tough job being a killer, but someone's got to do it. God says it's okay. Tick, tack, tick, tack. Nothing come to mind. Let me choose, then. Seems fitting. Katie struggled under the chair. Her arms flailed. She couldn't move it too far. Besides, the the chair in the way was the only thing saving her. Even if all he saw was her hand, if he shot it off, that would kill her plenty quick enough. Bastard! She growled into the soil. Oh, now, do you want your last words on this earth to be a curse? But before she could answer, I've thought of one, though. How about this? Good God, this guy could talk. At least being shot would be a relief from his voice. As I lay me down to sleep. Do you know that one, Katie? Oh yeah, that's great. Keep him talking. Probably too late now anyway. No one here. He could talk all he liked. She was delaying the inevitable. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. She heard the metallic click-clack of the gun being cocked. If I should die before I wake. Katie got a whiff of excited sweat and gun oil. She wriggled. Her left arm was free. That was both arms now. Maybe. I pray the Lord my soul. He leaned over and stood on her left arm at the wrist. Ah, ah, stay still. She felt the metal of the gun rustle in against the base of her skull and press there. I pray the Lord my soul to take. But no one's year began that badly, right? Wine and Words was presented by Sarah Jane Rose and was a Listening Shelf production.